Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. Before beginning this episode, I have a few announcements to make. First, I'd like to thank listener Scott for his generous contribution to the Patreon, and congratulate him for repeatedly mopping the floor with me and Axis and Allies Online. I think Scott might be a ringer. Second, the creator of In Tony's Footsteps wanted me to let you all know that the documentary is now available on YouTube, so if you'd like to, you can go check that out. And lastly, the show will be going on a semi-hiatus for about a year. As you all should know by now, I am a National Guardsman, and I will be deploying to the Middle East this summer. My mobilization begins May 1st, so my work on the podcast will slow down substantially. I will try to keep the show going while I'm over there, but I will be pretty busy so the pace will likely be significantly reduced. I know for certain I won't be able to release anything again until at least August, when I ship my equipment to myself. Now, don't worry about me, I'm on Division staff, so no Audie Murphy action is in my future. I will give you this though. There is an appendix I've been working on for a little while that I've been holding on to that I will publish before I go. I realize that even though we have been talking about an epic battle against fascism, I never really defined what fascism actually is. So I wrote an appendix explaining as best as I can what I think fascism is as a political movement or ideology. Okay, enough with the front matter, let's get to the show. As I mentioned in episode 39, I wanted to go back and recap the two big campaigns running parallel to the major Eurocentric ground campaigns, the Allied bombing campaign and the Battle of the Atlantic. I did begin a discussion of the U-boat war way back in episode 8, that was very much a preliminary account, and I did discuss the Arctic convoys, but now I intend to do a little bit of a deeper dive, especially since by this point in the war, at the beginning of 1944, the Battle of the Atlantic was essentially decided. So let's begin episode 40, The Battle of the Atlantic. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? As with the bombing campaign, the Battle of the Atlantic was a long, protracted battle against the enemy's ability to make war itself. In the bombing campaign, the Allies sought to disrupt German industry directly by destroying it. In the Battle of the Atlantic, the Germans sought to starve the British, and to a lesser extent the Soviet Union, of raw materials, finished goods, and of food itself. If the U-boat campaign had succeeded, the British home islands would have literally run out of food and the Red Army would have been denied the most basic resources needed to execute a modern maneuver war, namely trucks, boots, and winter coats, but also tanks, aircraft, and ammunition. 
The great irony of British wartime production was that the population and industrial capacity of the home islands were more than capable of producing and manning all of the military material it could ever need. What it lacked was the raw ingredients. This has been a driving factor in the creation of the empire in the first place, the need to find raw materials for its mercantilist economic system. Fully half of its food and all of its oil had to be imported, not to mention large amounts of non-ferrous metals like nickel and lead. In order to feed the population of the home islands and keep up war production, Britain would need to import 55 million tons of goods annually in 1939. To support its hunger for raw materials, Britain maintained an enormous merchant fleet, numbering 3,000 ocean-going cargo ships, 2,500 of which were at sea at any given moment. This fleet was manned by 160,000 merchant seamen. Thus was the basis of Germany's commitment to convoy raiding. If the Kriegsmarine could sink sufficient tonnage per month, the British home islands would literally starve to death. The primary instrument for interdicting Britain's commerce was the U-boat, and its principal proponent was Admiral Carl Dernitz. Dernitz had been a submarine skipper in the First World War, where he learned the trade and began developing his ideas for how to perfect commerce raiding. During the interwar years, he continued to develop U-boat doctrine and arrived at the concept of the Wolf Pack as the best means for deploying his forces. Though Germany was forbidden by treaty from fielding submarines, Dernitz utilized torpedo boats to hone his methods. Since a U-boat was essentially a submersible torpedo boat anyway, rather than a true submarine, torpedo boats were perfect analogs. In September of 1939, Dernitz only had 55 U-boats to work with, and of those, a scant 18 were of the truly ocean-going Type 7. The Type 7 would be the workhorse of the U-boat arm. At 220 feet long and capable of 17 knots surfaced, 7.5 submerged, it was by no means a hot rod, but it could outperform slow and awkward merchant vessels. It carried 44 men and brought 14 torpedoes to the fight, 5 in tubes and 9 in reserve. Though the larger Type 9 U-boat entered service in 1939, Dornitz actually considered it less capable than the Type 7. With so few boats available to him in the early days, Dernitz was not actually able to implement Wolfpack tactics yet, but if German production met his goal of 300 boats, he believed he could truly wreak havoc on Allied shipping. With that number of vessels, he believed he could keep 100 on patrol at all times and increase sinkings to the point that they outpaced the Allied ability to replace losses. The Allied merchant fleet was not completely helpless against the undersea menace, however. Recognizing the criticality and vulnerability of its merchant fleet, the Royal Navy had in service 220 escort vessels, 165 of which were destroyers. This allowed for roughly one escort for every 30 merchant ships. As soon as war broke out, the Royal Navy began corralling its merchant fleet into convoys, as it had been demonstrated to be an effective tactic during the First World War. In addition, aircraft were used to spot U-boats in open water and engage them if possible. For the first half of the war, a massive air gap lay in the central Atlantic, where no aircraft could reach. It was not until 1943, when the B-24 Liberator was introduced in sufficient numbers, that the gap could be closed and regular patrols of the Bay of Biscay could be conducted. Many of the Allied vessels were also equipped with ASDIC, an acoustic detection system and precursor to modern sonar. This allowed escorts to listen for submerged U-boats but had an effective range of only about 3 kilometers under ideal conditions and only if the U-boats were operating loudly. 
It was also ineffective against surface targets. The primary means of actually engaging U-boats was the depth charge. Essentially just a barrel filled with high explosive and set with an adjustable depth fuse. These were highly effective and operated on a horseshoes and hand grenades principle and that close enough was often all that was needed to cripple a U-boat. The pressure wave created by the blast would devastate submerged U-boats. The overpressure bursting pipes and breaking instruments or even crushing the hull entirely. The hard part was actually getting close enough in the first place. The Battle of the Atlantic, the phrase being another contribution by Winston Churchill to the historical lexicon, would progress through four phases. The first phase, from September of 1939 to May 1940, when the French Atlantic coast became available. The second phase, from May 1940 until December 1941, when the U-boats patrolled the near and mid-Atlantic. The third, from December 1941 to roughly May 1942, referred to as the happy time by U-boat skippers when it was open season on the American East Coast and Gulf of Mexico. Then, finally, beginning in June of 1942, the tide began to turn inevitably against the Kriegsmarine. Allied escort numbers would increase, and anti-submarine tactics and technologies would improve, until Dernitz accepted defeat in May of 1943. It would be a long road to victory for the Allies, though. The first phase of the war was really just an introduction. The U-boats were confined to bases in the North and Baltic Seas, forcing them to take the long, circuitous route north of Scotland to reach the sea lanes. From the beginning of the European War to June 1940, 141 ships were sunk, along with 750,000 tons of goods. A decent haul, but not enough to meet Dernitz's goals of crippling the British economy. The greatest achievements during this period were scored against the Royal Navy's surface fleet rather than against merchantmen. In October 1939, a U-boat managed to sneak into the home fleet's anchorage at Scapa Flow and sink the battleship Royal Oak, an aircraft carrier Courageous, an impressive score for such a small craft. Following the fall of France, the U-boat scourge would increase substantially. After the French capitulated, their Atlantic ports at Saint-Nazaire, Brest, La Rochelle, and Lorient became available. The voyage to reach the shipping lanes suddenly became much shorter and much less dangerous. Rather than traveling the North Sea, rounding the north of Scotland, and traversing essentially British home waters, the U-boat simply had to cross the Bay of Biscay. In the early war, the wolf packs concentrated on the near Atlantic, focusing especially on shipping coming in from Britain's colonial empire. Nigerian oil and South African ore being chief among those supplies. The first U-boat arrived in port on the Atlantic coast on July 7, 1940, only weeks after the fall of France, and that number would increase alarmingly quickly. The U-boats got to work right away. The overburdened Royal Navy would experience great trouble in protecting its convoys in 1940 and 41. During 1940, Convoys as large as 30 vessels could be protected by as few as a single escort. Convoy SC-7 was typical of these and demonstrated just how vulnerable Allied shipping was to concerted U-boat attacks. SC-7, SC, indicating that it originated from Sydney, Nova Scotia, launched on October 5, 1940, with 35 merchantmen escorted by a single sloop of war. Three days into its journey, the convoy encountered rough weather, which caused the convoy to break up and for some vessels to become isolated from the main body. This made them ripe pickings for the lurking wolf pack. The wolf pack that discovered SC-7 
did it through the very methods Dernitz had devised in the interwar years. The U-boats spread out across the ocean so that each vessel was just within visual range of the next two on its left and right. In this way, the pack could cover a continuous line extending for several hundred miles. Once a vessel was spotted, the U-boat would report via radio to Dernitz headquarters at La Palice and coordinate with the other vessels to converge. They would then remain at the edge of visual distance until nightfall, when the attack would begin. They would often infiltrate the convoy, lurking just above the waves in the dead of night inside the formation until releasing their fish to do their deadly work. Then they would submerge and disappear from view. The U-boats spent almost their entire time surfaced, only diving to escape some threat. Their diesel engines were faster, whereas submerged they were relying upon electric battery-powered engines. Snorkels would not come into service until 1944, too late to make a difference in the outcome. The battle with SC-7 raged for days. At night, the raiders would torpedo merchantmen only to dive and disappear during the day. After the initial attack, the Royal Navy dispatched more escorts to bring the convoy home and hunt its attackers, but they could not save the 17 ships that were lost already. The wolf pack simply overwhelmed the convoy escorts and even outperformed the smallest vessels. The escort sloop's top speed was only 14 knots, slower than a surface type 7. SC-7 was emblematic of the problems the Allies were up against. Scant escorts protecting too many ships against too many raiders. This is where the radio intelligence war came in. Both the German and British signals intelligence services would play a key role in determining the outcome of the Battle of the Atlantic. The radio was the key to the U-boat's success in that it allowed for coordination that was impossible in the First World War. U-boats could report sightings back to headquarters, where far-flung hunters were vectored onto the spotted ship or convoy. This strength was also a weakness, however, because radio transmissions are free for anyone to detect. So the Allies started listening. Even without being able to understand the coded transmission, the signal itself could provide valuable data. Thus, Huffduff was created. Huffduff, slang for high-frequency direction finding, was a tool that allowed the listener to know where a U-boat was based only on its transmission. But that wasn't all. British Signals Intelligence at Bletchley Park was busy attempting to decode German transmissions as well. On the other side of the equation, B. Dienst was constantly working to decipher the British naval code in order to get information on where convoys would be without ever spotting them. Even with wolf packs covering hundreds of miles visually, the ocean is so vast that it accounted for virtually nothing. The odds of actually spotting something weren't high enough for visual detection alone to yield sufficient results. Thus, the Battle of the Atlantic became a battle between codebreakers as much as it was between skippers and seamen. The B-Dienst was always chasing Allied signals to decipher and devise the orders of upcoming Allied convoys. In 1939, it consisted of just under a thousand staff, but within three years, it would swell to some 5,000 codebreakers in Berlin. For much of the early war, German signals analysts could read much of the British naval code, partly due to their stubborn use of codebooks as opposed to machine encipherment. Codebooks essentially being a pre-ordained set of codes to use and translate to and from plain text. This allowed the codebreakers in Berlin to start reconstructing codebooks as soon as they were put into use. The German Enigma 
was much more secure and naturally allowed for orders of magnitude more possible codes. The Bedienst achieved great success, and for much of the early war, during its new convoy departure times and routes, as much as 30 hours ahead of time, giving him a huge lead in positioning his wolf packs. On the other hand, Bletchley Park was working furiously to break the Enigma. Despite the fact that all transmissions were broadcast over a single frequency during this period, frequency hop was still in its infancy in the 1940s, that didn't mean that what you heard was necessarily intelligible. I covered this in episode 8 already, so I don't want to rehash too much, but it was at hut number 8 at Bletchley Park that contributed most to keeping the lifeline open to the home islands. It was their task to figure out where wolf packs and patrol lines were in order to provide that information to the Allied commander of the Western Approaches, who was responsible for all convoy protection in the Atlantic. He could then use that information to reroute convoys away from known patrol lines. As the war went on, the success of both Bletchley Park and B. Deanst would ebb and flow. In the early war, the U-boats concentrated on the near approaches to the Irish Sea, which led to the largest receiving ports in the UK, specifically Liverpool. As the number of escorts increased, along with their skill, the U-boats were driven further out to sea where convoys would be less concentrated. Around April of 1941, most wolfpacks were hunting in the mid-Atlantic, and would remain there until 1942. Despite this, the number of sinkings actually increased, as the number of U-boats on patrol went up. There was a significant lag time between U-boat production and actually getting qualified crews out on the open ocean. U-boat crews were not press-ganged ramshackle outfits. They would go through about a year of training in the Baltic before being unleashed on the open waters of the Atlantic, and the training was rigorous. Even so, rookie crews suffered the worst once on patrol. And life aboard the U-boat was awful. They endured cramped spaces that were often either too hot or too cold, and it was always damp. Salt water permeated everything, and fresh water was used as sparingly as possible, meaning no showers, so the odors could be overpowering. Not just the stink of sweaty men, but of oils, lubricants, fuel, and corroding metal. For their trouble, they were hailed as heroes at home. Returning U-boat crews could be expected to be treated as conquering heroes when on shore leave. What little consolation that is to a service that saw nearly 75% casualties, only a fraction of which were ever rescued from the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. Those that died suffered one of the worst deaths imaginable. If they were lucky, they died instantly, in an explosion. But most would have drowned in the pitch black, hundreds of feet below the surface of the ocean, trapped in their iron tombs. Some crews even survived their sinkings in shallow waters, so were trapped on the ocean floor with no way out. The lucky ones were simply crushed at great depth. In January of 1942, the happy times began. When the United States entered the war, it was suddenly open season on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., and the Navy was slow to adopt the convoy. Convoys marshalling in Commonwealth waters were obliged to wait and organize, but ships en route from Norfolk, New Orleans, or Galveston would sail individually to their departure points. This left them incredibly vulnerable to attack, and Dernitz capitalized on it to catastrophic effect. The escort navy had their share of hardships as well. It was drawn almost entirely from the British Naval Reserve, and in the early days, pretty much all of its ships were outdated, and some were even relics of the First World War. The smaller vessels often handled poorly in the open ocean, and could leak badly, 
not from the sea below, but through the deck and superstructure as the vessel rolled and the deck wash overwhelmed the ship. As time wore on, newer and more seaworthy ships were added, but the North Atlantic can be quite violent during winter. Of course, bad weather meant no U-boat attacks, so I suppose the sailors counted their blessings when they could. In the very first month of 1942, there were 18 U-boats patrolling off the U.S. East Coast that scored 57 sinkings for 350,000 tons and suffered zero losses. In March, they sank 400,000 tons, and in April, the number of U-boats rose to 31, and they sank 133 ships for 640,000 tons lost. It wasn't until August that the United States realized their folly and mandated convoy. During that time, however, the U-boat sank just over 600 ships and over 3 million tons of cargo. In total, 184 U-boats were sent over and only 22 were lost. The U.S. would implement blackouts on the East Coast cities to help conceal vessels off the coast and prevent them from being silhouetted against the lights, but the convoy was what was really needed. The losses off the East Coast are probably the greatest blemish on Chief of Naval Operations Admiral King's record. He wrongly concluded, just as the British Admiralty had during the First World War, that convoys would simply provide the U-boats with easier targets. This was of course false, but in his defense, nearly all of his efforts were concentrated on the Pacific Theater, and what few escorts he did have available, he dedicated to troop transports, resulting in zero losses of troop ships. Additionally, the losses were partly so catastrophic because Bletchley Park lost its ability to even partially decode Enigma traffic, while at the same time, the beatings made huge strides in their decryption capabilities. They were able to completely recreate the Royal Navy's codebook by January of 1942, and thus were able to read as much as 80% of the traffic transmitted, giving them significant lead time on convoys. The Royal Navy would not replace their codebook until May of 1943, giving the Germans over a year of high-quality signals intelligence. With the onset of convoy in the Western Atlantic, the happy times drew to a close. From August of 1942 to May of 1943, the next phase of battle unfolded. There were no longer safe places for the U-boats in the Atlantic, so Dernitz was forced to confront the Allies' surface combatants. Until this point, there was always some chink in the armor, in the early war, the Allies simply didn't have the aircraft or vessels to protect convoys, even in home waters. As the war went on, the western approaches were buttoned up, so Darnett sent his hunters out into the central Atlantic, where there was no air cover, and where response forces were several days sailing away. As the number of escorts and aircraft patrols increased, and with the entry of America into the war, the U.S. East Coast became the weak point. Once the convoy was instituted, however, that weakness evaporated, and the Western Atlantic became too dangerous to operate in. Now, the U-boats would have to give battle on much more even terms. Even the U-boats' home waters in the Bay of Biscay now came under attack. In early 1942, the coastal patrol aircraft began to be outfitted with the Ley Light. U-boats often traversed the bay under cover of darkness, for obvious reasons. Even if aircraft could spot them with radar, they could not visually identify them making them essentially impossible to engage. The Ley Light was an extremely powerful searchlight that allowed aircraft to illuminate their targets from as far away as two kilometers where radar ceased to function. This made the U-boats vulnerable to aerial attack and forced them to make the crossing submerged until radar detection equipment could be developed and employed. Even then, 
the crossing of the bay would remain dangerous for the rest of the war. July 1942 was also when Dernitz finally achieved his goal of 300 boats. This would be the climax of the Battle of the Atlantic. Dernitz had achieved his desired strength, but the Allies were now operating with a lot more tools in their chest, including merchant aircraft carriers, predecessors of escort carriers. Both convoy and U-boat losses would be high during this period. Anti-submarine tactics had come a long way in the previous three years. Early on, escort destroyers and corvettes would mostly guess at where U-boats were and try to drop some depth charges somewhere in its general vicinity. By 1942, however, some rather sophisticated measures had been developed. Active acoustic detection in the form of sonar was added to passive ASDIC detection. A creeping technique was developed by Captain F.J. Walker of the Royal Navy. This technique overcame the problem of sonar pings being ineffective at less than 200 meters. This detection gap allowed a skilled U-boat skipper to disappear when an escort got overhead. The creeping technique utilized two or more ships to overcome this by keeping one vessel further away to maintain sonar contact while the other maneuvered on the submerged U-boat slowly and silently, then surprising it with depth charges. Once the Hedgehog depth charge launcher was introduced, this technique became even easier. Due to their ability to read Royal Navy signals almost as well as their intended recipients, Dernitz was able to vector his wolf packs onto convoys extremely effectively. This meant more contact with the enemy and thus more opportunities to sink U-boats. In addition to the aforementioned improved convoy tactics, techniques, and procedures, the Allies also began utilizing support groups. Groups of ships not assigned to a particular convoy were rather held in reserve and dispatched to respond to U-boat attacks. Since U-boats would often linger on their targets for days in order to strike again each night, response forces proved effective. The inclusion of anti-submarine aircraft allowed convoys to spot their hunters from the air as well, the distinctive wake being even more easily visible from the air than from sea level. By coordinating air patrols, acoustic devices, and advanced techniques, convoys became much harder targets. Dernitz forces scored considerable success during this period, and one of their most effective months was November of 1942, when they sank 500,000 tons of shipping, nearly as much as they sank during the peak of the happy times. Bad weather during the winter would offer some relief to the Allied convoys, as rough seas limited visibility and even forced U-boats to submerge in order to avoid the worst of rolling waves. Once the weather cleared, the U-boats resumed their usual stalking, however. In March of 1943, the single deadliest U-boat attack occurred against convoys HX-229, Halifax, New Brunswick, and SC-122. Over the course of several days, the Wolfpack sunk 22 out of the 49 merchantmen in the convoy for 146,000 tons. It accounted for fully a quarter of all tonnage sunk that month. Despite their continued success, the battle was actually not quite swinging as far in Dernitz's favor as it appeared. For one, Allied shipyards were not only replacing monthly losses, but were working toward replacing all losses since the start of the war. This meant not only that the merchant fleet was getting larger, but also that it was increasing in quality. In addition to launching more cargo vessels, more destroyers and corvettes were entering service, and soon escort carriers would be joining the convoys. This meant not only more escorts per convoy, but more response forces with faster modern ships that could respond relatively quickly. The Allies had also spent the last four years developing better anti-submarine technology. 
As Dick continued to improve, radar became more common and more trusted by crews, and depth charging improved. Initially, depth charges were simply rolled off the back of a ship, and their characteristics were unreliable. Some sank faster than others, and the depth setting was guesswork. With improved ASDIC, escorts could now determine the depth, and thus knew how to set their charges. The Hedgehog Depth Charge Launcher was also developed. This allowed escorts to create much more effective spreads of destruction, rather than having to sail directly over a submerged U-boat. Most of all, though, by this point in the war, naval bombers were much more common, specifically the B-24 Liberator. Aircraft were a U-boat's worst enemy. Initially, they were problematic because they forced the spotted U-boat to submerge and reported their positions, but as the war went on, their offensive capabilities grew. They were themselves armed with depth charges, which they could drop from the air and score kills themselves. By mid-1943, a new, even deadlier weapon was added to their arsenal, the Mark 24 mine. Cryptically named like other Allied weapons, such as variable-timed fuses for artillery to hide their true purpose. The Mark 24 was not a mine at all, but an acoustic homing torpedo that could be launched from an aircraft. This proved especially deadly as it could crack the hull of a U-boat with ease. The aforementioned Laylight gave them the ability to conduct attacks at night. When they began tormenting U-boats traversing the Bay of Biscay, Durnitz at first ordered his skippers to fight it out on the surface with their conning tower-mounted anti-aircraft guns. But this proved ineffectual, and he eventually had to relent and tell his U-boats to make the crossing submerged. Remarkably, a few U-boats did manage to shoot down their aerial hunters. Worst of all for the U-boats were the escort carriers, though. These smaller carriers allowed convoys to bring their aircraft with them. They would maintain constant air patrols over the convoy, making stalking much more difficult, as submerging severely limited a U-boat's detection capability. It also meant help was much closer when a U-boat attack did begin. Rather than waiting as much as eight hours for a Liberator to show up, the escort carrier simply launched its ASW aircraft, who could begin combating the foe immediately. In June of 1943, these advantages would be compounded by the introduction of a new naval cipher that severely impacted B. Dean's ability to read Allied traffic. Without the ability to vector wolf packs along known convoy routes, the U-boats once again became reliant on luck, hoping that they would just happen upon a convoy. This shifted the balance irrevocably toward the Allies. Their ability to detect U-boats, either through direct spotting or signals intelligence, allowed them to redirect convoys en route in order to avoid the U-boats who now did not have any reliable recourse. Perhaps if Germany had achieved a 300-boat fleet earlier, the outcome may have been different, but time seemed to be on the Allies' side either way. Of 830 U-boats that went on patrol, 713 never returned. 204 were lost to land-based aircraft, 240 to escort vessels, 39 to carrier-based aircraft, 84 to general convoy action, and differences made up with various accidents at sea. 25,000 Kriegsmarine sailors were lost to the Atlantic, of a total undersea mariner force of 40,000. All of this forced Dernitz to essentially admit defeat in 1943. In May of that year, he withdrew his boats from the Atlantic. Allied advantages had meant sinkings were now outpacing new boat launches, meaning the U-boat force was shrinking for the first time since the onset of hostilities. The Allies had won the Battle of the Atlantic. But as frightening as it was to Churchill, 
it is doubtful Germany ever really had a chance, at least with the United States in the war. Despite their massive success, 2,452 merchantmen sunk for 13 million gross registered tons of cargo, including 30,000 merchantmen and 175 warships, the Wolfpacks actually sank only a fraction of Allied shipping. 2,400 merchantmen sunk sounds impressive, and it is, but it must be compared against the total number of crossings by individual ships, 43,526, yielding a loss rate of only 0.056%. Convoy was an extremely effective tactic, and being a part of a convoy increases its survivability substantially. Even for the first three years of the war, only 290 ships were sunk in convoy, 0.02% of all convoy traffic. This does, of course, exclude ships sunk out of convoy, like those destroyed during the Happy Time, but these were the exception. Even so, the home islands were never truly under threat of starvation. Now, just because it is unlikely Dernitz could have ever completely strangled the home islands doesn't mean the U-boats were not an effective investment. Every piece of material and ton of ore that did not reach the home islands increased the chances of achieving victory. If British factories could not turn out guns and bullets, there would be nothing for armies to fight with. Even more crucial was interdicting supplies to the Soviet Union. In a war that was fought on a knife's edge for years, even small changes can make a huge difference. It's difficult to tell what that tipping point would have been. How many sinkings, and how early would they be necessary to sufficiently undersupply the Soviet Union? Between March of 1943 and the end of the war, the United States supplied the Soviet Union with mountains of supplies, 2,000 locomotives, 11,000 railcars, 3 million tons of gasoline, 375,000 trucks, and 15 million pairs of boots. If this supply had been interdicted, even partially, it may well have stopped the Red Army in its tracks. This was all in addition to the 15,000 aircraft, 7,000 tanks, and 350,000 tons of high explosive shipped across the Arctic convoy routes. Perhaps, perhaps not. One critical disadvantage Dernitz had was that his force was technologically stagnant for much of the war. We have discussed the myriad ways in which the Allies improved their convoy protection measures, but we have discussed scant few innovations undertaken by the undersea forces. Radar detection was developed fairly early on, but the critical introduction of the snorkel, which allowed U-boats to use their diesel engines underwater, didn't come until 1944. This would have made the U-boats true submarines, able to operate continuously underwater without the need to surface. The Type 7 remained the mainstay of the Dernitz Wolfpacks for the duration of the war. As the Allies developed ever newer vessels, from new classes of corvette and destroyer, to merchant carriers and escort carriers, to the Liberty ship, the Germans were inexplicably static. Surely there were many improvements that could have been made to the U-boats that was shifted the war in their favor earlier. Had a faster snorkel-mounted U-boat been introduced in 1943, maybe they could have fought on even longer. It's impossible to know, but the lack of innovation on the part of Dernitz undersea service is baffling. Though the Allies effectively won the Battle of the Atlantic in May of 1943, the U-boats would remain active until the end of the war. The introduction of the snorkel did breathe some new life into the force, but without their pens on the Atlantic coast, the U-boats lost a significant advantage. They could still prey on the Arctic convoys, but it was really too little too late by the end of the war. 
Dernitz's undersea hunters may have been Hitler's greatest weapon, but even they could not overcome the sheer industrial might of the United States. Thank you.